is Wage World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. You want to see how the other half lives? We'll see how we get around. Why don't you come visit me? and you're listening to Wage World, a Voice of the People program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wage World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay, points east and west, where we are either rebroadcast or live-streamed at kabf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available this show on those websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. And today we're talking to Victoria Law, who, along with Maya Shinbar, has written a very interesting book called Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. Victoria is a freelance journalist. She's the author of Resistance Behind Bars and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friend Behind. Welcome to Wade's World, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me, Wade. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, criminal justice, if we want to call it that, criminal injustice, uh, as we might say from your book, has been in the news for months now. And President Trump is even claiming he's uh, Mr. Reformer. So uh, let's look at uh, the main arguments from your book. Some of these solutions around prison aren't working out the way perhaps we might hope. Yes. So what we're seeing is what we saw starting under Obama and then continuing under the current president is that there has been a wave of a wave of reforms or proposals for reforms because the United States currently has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prison population. We have between 2.2 and 2.3 million people behind bars. This is not including people in immigrant detention, juvenile jails and prisons, uh, mental health facilities. These are just people in typical jails and prisons. And we have ballooning costs in this country because the cost of incarcerating people is so high. And more and more people are beginning to realize that locking people up is not the answer. I mean, uh, Louisiana has the nation's highest incarceration rate, and if incarceration kept us safe, uh, Louisiana should be the safest place in the world to live, and also the United States should be the safest country in the world to live. But what we're seeing is that instead of alternatives and programs that actually address underlying factors as to why people are arrested, sent to jail, sent to prison, uh, such as poverty, such as racial profiling, such as racism and, uh, you know, widespread drug use. Instead, what we're seeing are alternatives that are being proposed that are very eerily like prisons, uh, except that they are perhaps in homes or in other places that are not called jails and prisons. And they replicate the logic of prisons in that if you do something, you should just be punished in some way, not that we should be looking at the underlying conditions as to what happened, how to address them, and then how to make sure that they don't happen again. And what ends up happening is we widen the net 
meaning that more and more people get swept up into some forms of surveillance and coercive control than they might otherwise be. So people who might otherwise be allowed to just live their lives are instead placed under some form of control, such as probation or electronic monitoring, where any action that is not sanctioned, such as coming home past a certain hour or failing to uh, meet with your probation officer or your electronic monitoring officer can lead you back to jail or to prison. You make the point in the book uh, that, I mean, you say 2.3 million are in prison, that a number almost uh, as large are on parole right now and in some form of probation. Yes. There are currently 3.6 million people on probation. So that is a huge number, uh, in addition to having uh, the world's highest number of people behind bars, the United States also has the highest number of people on probation. And what listeners should remember is that when you are on probation, you are under a vast set of rules and regulations, some of which may contradict each other or make it difficult for people to live what conservatives might call law-abiding, productive lives uh, in their, their neighborhoods and communities. So, for instance, people on probation are often required to report to their probation officers in the middle of a workday. So how many times would your boss allow you to just skip out of work for an hour or two hours or three hours each week or each month um, to go meet with a probation officer. That is just one of the very many ways, uh, rules that can trip people up. Um, Probation is also uh, a significant driver to people being incarcerated again, and not for necessarily committing acts that are crimes, but for failing to meet one of the numerous requirements of probation, like meeting your probation officer, abiding by a curfew, which is often an early curfew, uh, not uh, not going to certain neighborhoods, uh, failing a drug test. Uh, in some cases, people on probation are not allowed to drink alcohol either. Um, so there are a number of ways in which people can be incarcerated for acts that are not crimes unless you are on probation. Um, and again, this Probation does not do anything to address the underlying reasons why people were caught in the criminal legal system to begin with. And probation is often used as an alternative to prison for, again, for acts that are not necessarily harmful uh, to others in the community and instead serves as the sort of kinder, gentler form of imprisonment that people, when faced with the choice of taking their case to trial or spending a long time caught up in the legal system fighting whatever charges uh, have been brought against them or taking probation often choose that alternative so that that way they can try to move on with their lives. Well, and you made a a very convincing argument, I thought, around the catch-22 that someone faces when they're offered electronic monitoring, um, which can sometimes end up doubling their sentence. Uh, in terms of time spent uh, and in a real Hobson's choice, if they don't pay the bill, they can also end up back in prison. Yes. So I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. what in the world? I mean, yes. Anybody who doesn't realize this is happening, uh, that's just crazy because you think, oh, well, who wouldn't make a choice to stay at home with their children as opposed to being behind bars? But 
Um, that didn't seem such a clear choice sometimes after reading the book. Yeah, indeed. I mean, electronic monitoring is put out there, put forth as a kinder, gentler form of incarceration. So for listeners who don't know, electronic monitoring uh, is when you have a GPS device attached to you, typically uh, as a giant ankle shackle, which you are not allowed to remove upon uh, penalty of incarceration. And it tracks your every movement. And unlike, say, shelter at home, you need pre-authorization to be able to leave the boundaries of your home or your home in your yard or your home in your, you know, hallway. Uh, you so And sometimes that authorization needs to happen up to a week in advance. So as we saw during the early days of the pandemic, you would go to the grocery store and sometimes people would have bought up all the toilet paper, milk, bread, and pasta. And if you are on electronic monitoring, you have to submit to the person who is monitoring you a list of places you want to go and when. So you can say, I would like to go grocery shopping Saturday at 9 a.m. And I'm going to go to this grocery store over here. And they will say, yes, that is approved. And at 9 a.m., you go to your approved grocery store and you realize that people have panic bought everything that you and your family need. And most people would then get in their car or walk over to the next grocery store and see if there were there was anything that they needed there. But under electronic monitoring, you cannot do that. Instead, you have to return home and hope that somebody else in your family or in your household or a kind and generous neighbor will do you the favor of doing the shopping for you because you have used up your trip to the grocery store during that time period. So this is just one of the very small ways in which electronic monitoring prevents people from being able to live their lives. And what we have to remember is that people who are put on probation and electronic monitoring are not what we think of as people who are quote-unquote dangerous. Like they are not people who are facing charges of or convicted of assault or sexual assault or murder or attempted murder. These are often people who have been arrested and are facing charges for lower-level crimes that in the past they might not have served any sentence at all, but because we have these newer forms of incarceration outside of the home, uh, judges are more likely to accept that and impose that as a penalty. And people who are desperate to avoid being sent to jail or being sent to prison, which, as you pointed out, uh, separates you from your family, makes you lose your job, you are put in some faraway chaotic dorm room or cr- uh, cramped prison cell for who knows how long, um, seem to be a better alternative to being able to keep your family and your life together. But what ends up happening is people are further penalized and oftentimes not able to care for their families or maintain their relationships, or even sometimes maintain their jobs with the numbers of restrictions placed on them by these alternatives. We're talking to Victoria Law, who, with Maya Shinwar, has written a book called Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reform. This whole electronic monitoring thing also seemed to have a bit of a scam to it in terms of the authorities collecting money from people, I mean, essentially are paying for their own punishment in many cases, aren't they? Yes. So electronic monitoring often, not always, but often, comes with a fee. So 
father, so if somebody is incarcerated in a jail or a prison, that jail or prison has to pay for them. So, uh, so that, and that comes out of taxpayer dollars. So your dollars, my dollars, your listeners' dollars go towards keeping people in jails or in prisons. But what, uh, under electronic monitoring, not only are, P- are jurisdictions, local governments, state governments, not paying for the cost of uh, incarcerating people, food, shelter, insurance, uh, the cost of more officers, you know, at whatever salary they make plus benefits plus everything else to guard people. Uh, so that cost gets eliminated. But also people are sometimes are often asked to pay for their own monitoring. For, in, for instance, in Mountain Lake Terrace, Washington, which is a suburb north of Seattle, Washington, a one-day jail stay costs the city $61 per day per person. And the city normally spent between $610 and $854 each day to detain 10 to 14 people. And what that city did instead was it contracted with a small private company for electronic monitoring for people who were considered low-risk offenders with little to no previous criminal history. So these were people who, if there was not this new technology available, the city might have said, it's not worth paying hundreds of dollars each day to keep them behind bars. Tell them to go home and show up to their court date on such and such a date. So, And what this company does is, in this case, it charged the city $5 and $75 per person. And what the city turned around and did was it charged the person who was being monitored $20 per day. So the person who was let out awaiting trial had to pay $20 per day to be able to stay out of jail while they were awaiting their day in court. Keep in mind that when you are pre-trial, you are innocent until proven guilty. And in this case, you are paying even though you are innocent until proven guilty. And that money, unlike paying for bail, does not come back to you at the end of your court proceedings. So you can be paying your $20 per day and say a month goes by before your next court date. That's $600. If at the next court date your case is dismissed and the judge says, this is a stupid case, or, oh, we found out that you didn't do it, or the prosecutor says, oh, we have new evidence that proves that you know somebody else did this, you don't get that $600 back. They're just out of luck. Whereas, and this is not a case for bail, but I'm saying that if somebody had just had to pay $600 in bail, they would have that money returned to them, sometimes minus some court fees, but they would not be out an entire $600 for that month that they stayed out of jail. And, and as we all read about Florida, some of these things just pyramid in terms of additional fees and fines. Yeah. And even when you finally you know, are through with the whole uh, criminal justice system. The average fines uh, in Florida for former felons are now over $1,000 as, uh, you know, a bar to them being able to vote and everything else. I started out as an organizer many years ago in the last century organizing welfare recipients. I was very interested in uh, the arguments about how the social service system has become even more part of the police force. I mean, back when I began as an organizer, we were stopping social workers from being able to do, you know, man-in-the-house searches. And at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, it was illegal uh, in the Warren court. Uh, 
but now it looks like uh, from reading your book, uh, I read that chapter with a special interest uh, in terms of how people are losing their children and uh, good-hearted people who are usually the folks that end up drifting towards the social service sector end up being part of the extended police force, it seems. Yes. I mean, in every state there are uh, people who work in social work as well as people who work in schools and medical uh, offices such as hospitals or clinics are mandated reporters. So that means that if they suspect that there is child abuse uh, or child neglect, they have to report this child abuse or child neglect to social services. And listeners may think, well, what's so bad about that? Because it is better to stop child abuse or child neglect than to, uh, than to let it continue. But first we have to remember that people's perceptions of who is a good parent and particularly when we're talking about children and child welfare, who makes a good mother are often very rooted in uh, ideas around race and class and people's abilities to be good parents based on these stereotypes that we've had. So um, many listeners may remember that in the 1980s and 1990s, we had these images of black mothers as welfare queens who were just having built having babies to collect welfare and were wearing fur coats and driving Cadillacs and somehow got all this money off of welfare uh, to not only feed their children but afford all of these extravagances, which was not true but was a way to demonize women who were getting welfare using this trope of the unfit black mother. And these kinds of stereotypes uh, affect who gets perceived as a good mother and who gets perceived as a negligent mother. And remember that child neglect is often based in poverty, not necessarily people's willful neglect of their children. So uh, social workers or teachers or medical professionals might call child welfare saying, hey, this child has no heat in their house. Now, that is not necessarily, particularly in cities and areas in which people do not own their own homes and do not have control over uh, the utilities that they receive or do not receive, that may not be the, uh, the ability of that parent to be able to fix. That might be the only housing they can afford is in a building where the landlord doesn't bother to provide heat unless forced to do so. But what happens is that child welfare is called and the family is placed into either a low-risk or a high-risk group. And if they're a low-risk, they are, uh, the family, the parents are given requirements to fulfill and their actions are supervised by child services. And there is always the risk, such as with electronic monitoring and probation, there's always the risk of being sent back to prison. There's the risk of being, of having your children taken away from you if you do not comply with all of these mandates. And some of these mandates are very hard to comply with if you are low income, if you don't have a lot of opportunities and resources. You can, the child welfare system does not help you figure out how to take your landlord to court to say, it is 30 degrees out. You need to provide heat to everybody in your building. It simply says, you must, have, you must live in a building that has heat for you and your children in order to be considered a fit parent or, you know, not have your children be taken away. Um, so people then we have are situations like Arkansas where there's not even a, a warrant of habitability. Um, yes where this show is being broadcast, so the landlord has no responsibility. And 
and certainly in many states where we're broadcast and our listeners are picking this up, landlords have the rights and tenants don't. I mean, I've got to say, Victoria, that uh, you can, when, when you and Maya finish uh, on this subject, there's a whole book on the difference between abuse and neglect that could be written mm-hmm. across every part. Of, I mean, nursing home work. I mean, our union wins one grievance and arbitration after another on the failure of any authorities to ever be willing to define exactly what abuse would be versus neglect. Yeah. And neglect is almost always <laughs> subjective. An opinion, mm-hmm. but, and as you say, freighted with uh, a lot of cultural, racist, and other kinds of stereotypes. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's not public policy. I mean, defining abuse and neglect is is one of the worst examples of uh, a huge hole in public policy. We're, we're talking. Uh, I better get off my soapbox here. We're talking to Victoria Law about the book she and Maya Shinwar have written called Prison by Any Other Name the harmful consequences of popular reform. Let's look uh, at a brighter side. Uh, When we uh, read your book, and of course this is getting a little bit more traction, we're talking about uh, things that can be more transformative, like transformative justice. What are we talking about there, Maya? Maya, uh, Victoria, excuse me. It's okay. So when we talk about transformative justice, we're looking at a form of addressing harm and harmful behaviors that don't rely on the idea that you have to simply punish people and lock them away somewhere else, whether that somewhere else is a jail, a prison, uh, house arrest and electronic monitoring in their own home. Um, Instead, what we're seeing is the idea that people need, we need to not only address what happened and center the people who have been harmed in that conversation. In the traditional criminal court system, uh, the person who has been harmed is only called upon to testify and maybe give a victim impact statement, but they are not at the center. Their, Their needs are not centered in this. Somebody who has been assaulted, for instance, may need uh, their medical costs covered. They may need therapy. They may need, you know, so other uh, needs that come up, you know, as a result of them having been assaulted. And transformative justice takes these into consideration, works with both the person who has been harmed and the person who has done the harm, as well as the larger community to say, what were the conditions that happened to cause this problem to cause this harm to happen and how can we change it? So I want to give an example of, you know, a very well-known example. So say, look at the case of Harvey Weinstein, who for decades got away with sexually assaulting so many women in Hollywood, uh, from hopeful actresses to established actresses to, you know, uh, people who are working in the industry that wanted to get ahead. And if we look at What happens now is that, you know, years and years and years later, he was finally arrested. You know, charges were finally brought against him. But for years, this was just a well-known secret in the industry. So under transformative justice, we would also be looking not only at Harvey Weinstein, who sexually assaulted so many women during his uh, reign as a movie mogul, but also what were the conditions in Hollywood that allowed this behavior to continue? Why did so many people know about this and nobody said anything? Why did nobody, you know, challenge him early on to say, 
Harvey, you can't be doing this. You can't, you know, do these things. So what were all of the conditions that happened to allow him to prey on women, uh, compelled women to stay silent uh, or risk losing opportunities? And, you know, basically, why did people allow this to continue? What is the culture in Hollywood that did this, you know, that allowed this to flourish? And so transformative justice does this as well. We look at what are the conditions that enable people to do this kind of behavior, not just you are bad, you should be punished. And are there some good examples of where that's starting to happen now, Victoria? Uh, yes. I mean, transformative justice is unlike the criminal court system. It is not a one-size-fits-all blueprint. Uh, sure. So people are practicing transformative justice in different ways. There are... Uh, there's a form called community accountability, which is a long process. It is not as simple as the court system, where it can take a year or two years of meeting and facilitating and figuring out what is the best way to address the harm and change the conditions. Um, so there are transformative justice practices happening in Chicago, in New York City, uh, in California. And then that people are practicing transformative justice on an everyday basis. I mean, if you think about uh, conflicts that you have with your loved ones or your neighbors or your community members to whom you don't call the police on. So say somebody, you know, steals $20 from you. Uh, if you have family members or loved ones who perhaps have substance use issues, your first thought is not to call the police on them. It's to try to confront them and figure out, you know, what happened and why, you know, how you can address this. And how you can keep this from happening again. And we do this again and again in our own lives. So transformative justice is looking at that and saying, how can we do, how can we do these kinds of practices, you know, when harm happens to us, rather than relying on a system that just cages people and does not actually promote safety and accountability for anybody. It is part of the divide we see in modern American society, though. We have a whole shame shame squad it seems on social media for uh, fairly minor things that pushes back on this level of community accountability for what are often minor or certainly nonviolent kinds of uh, problems uh, it's it's worrisome isn't it victoria it is i mean what we're seeing is that uh, a replication of what the criminal court system does, which is it shames and it punishes people, but does not actually call for them to be accountable. Harvey Weinstein is not sitting in his prison cell being held accountable. He has been removed from the community, which, you know, many people would argue is a good thing. So he, he has been removed from his position of power and it removed from the community. But what enabled his rampant sexual assaults was not him being in the community. It was that position of power that he wielded over so many people. So, but he's not sitting in his prison cell thinking that, you know, perhaps he should not have raped so many women. He's sitting in his prison cell thinking about how he's going to get out, how he's yeah. going to deny accountability for any of these actions. He's going to deny any of these actions, period, let alone, you know, admit any sort of culpability or accountability to this. And our prison system doesn't encourage people to take responsibility for what they have done and to address the harms that they have caused. To the degree that cost, I mean, this is where we started our conversation, Victoria, to the degree that costs are ballooning and so many 
that are willing to wave the banner of uh, prison reform or criminal justice reform are really looking just at the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, restorative justice and community accountability are long, lengthy, and not necessarily cheap alternatives. They're certainly cheaper than holding somebody in prison, but mm-hmm. uh, there's an infrastructure that'll have to be built. On yeah, but at the same time, when people are thinking about cost, and one of the things we need to think about is, is saving a few dollars here and there better in the long run, in the future, than having a community that is safe? I mean, in New York City, there's a program called Common Justice, which is a restorative justice program. So it works with youth who are either ages 18 to 24 or 18 to 26. I forget the exact cutoff for the older age who have been arrested and are facing charges for violent crimes. So not uh, nonviolent drug possession, not, you know, uh, not shoplifting, but things like assault, robbery. Uh, I think the only two that they do not deal with are rape and domestic violence because those are different skill sets around, you know, how to, how to facilitate uh, restorative justice. And what common justice does is it goes to the court and it identifies people who fit the, the profile of 18 to 24-year-olds who have who are facing charges for violent crimes. And then they We're go going to have to see if that, that, that works, but I want you to tell people how they can get uh, your book before we have to sure. get up here. Yes. Uh, they can order the book. If they have a, an independent local bookstore that is open, I always recommend that people go and support their local bookstores because without, you know, without support, these local bookstores will close, and then we will have one less place to get information. If you don't have a local bookstore, I recommend uh, bookshop.org, B-O-O-K-S-H-O-P dot O-R-G, uh, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. Um, you can also find it in all the usual places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, but again, if you can go support your local business, I encourage you to do that first. And if they want to continue the conversation with you or your co-author, is there any uh, website that y'all have with the book or anything else? Or uh, we do not. We have, uh, there is a website on the New Press, newpress, N-E-W-P-R-E-S-S.com. I can be found on victorialaw.net. Maya Shenwar can be found on uh, mayashenwar.net as well. Excellent. Thank you for being with us. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sang, things you've never seen will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrow Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rathke for Wage World. Thank you.